Let's see. Can you all hear me now? All right. Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 is going to be our focus. But I want to read from Revelation 6, verses 1 through 6. We are in the chapter dealing with the beginnings of the judgments that are going to come upon the earth after the church is taken out of the way because God is coming back to dealing with the nation of Israel for seven years. And, uh, <clears throat> but the scene is still in heaven where John is observing what is taking place. And uh, the one who took the seals, or I should say the one who took the scroll from the hand of the Father, which is the only one worthy to do it, which was Jesus himself, has taken the scroll, has broken a couple of seals already. We're going to see the third seal broken or opened tonight. So, but we're going to read verses 1 through one through 6. What we're doing is we're adding the, we're just kind of growing in the picture of what is taking place uh, in, in these particular judgments. So we're going to begin with verse 1. Now, I, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. The Apostle John now is writing. And I heard one of the four living creatures, <clears throat> excuse me, saying with a, a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. The first seal broken, the first judgment in essence. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, <clears throat> and he went out conquering and to conquer. He had a bow, no arrows. He had a crown, but not a crown that belongs to a king, but a crown that belongs to a victor. And he went out conquering and to conquer. So we know that this is a false Christ, as it were. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And so from the false peace that, was, that is to be brought in by the false Messiah or the false Christ, as it were, uh, would come then the, the reality of the intention of the Antichrist, which reflects back to the intention of the devil himself. And that is to go from a false peace into times of of killing and war. And then in verse 5, where we are beginning tonight, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, Now, I'll talk about that voice here in just a moment. But it's a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. If you'll notice, as you move to the left, you'll see the third horse, the black horse with the rider holding 
scales in his hand. The title deed to the earth, the scroll, is now being opened one seal at a time by the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, the only one worthy to take that scroll from the Father's right hand. And there is a meaning here that we have yet to examine, but its meaning does coincide most significantly with the Olivet Discourse. Now, if you don't know what the Olivet Discourse is, it is a message that, a prophetic message that Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. But primarily, Mark, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 24 has the extent of this, this particular prophecy. And what we are examining when we look at these seals being broken, especially the first four, we are, we are seeing that correspond with the Olivet Discourse, with that message that Jesus gave in which he prophesies the events of the last days and his eventual return to Jerusalem as king. Now, he's responding, in essence, to two questions that the disciples have asked him. When is this temple going to you know, be destroyed? And when is your coming? Or when, are the, or when is the when is the end coming, as it were? So I can get it to you correctly. I will give you the questions, which are back in Matthew 24, verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him. By the way, the Olivet Discord is, is because it is on the Mount of Olives that he gives it. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Because of what he said about the temple in verse 2. About not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So those are the questions that are asked in this Olivet Discourse, or at least in what leads him to giving this Olivet Discourse. Now the meaning based on the similarities between Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, become all too clear. And that is that the end of the world will not come all at once. That that is the meaning that we don't want to lose out on tonight and through our study of chapter 6. The end of the world, the end of all things, will not come all at once. It comes in stages, it comes in sections, it will eventually all come, but, but it doesn't all come at once. And, and to give us that indication, we have to consider, first of all, these statements by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, verse 6, when he says, and the most important thing is at the very end, he says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So there are certain things taking place that are going to be taking place in the end, but it's not all going to be all at once. 
things are going to happen. And then he says, that's going to happen, but the end isn't yet. There's more coming. And take, for example, Matthew 24, verse 8, the next verse I want you to look at, because it says all these are the beginning of sorrows. Notice, it's not even the fullness of the sorrows, it's just the beginning of the sorrows. All of these things are going to be happening, and it's just the beginning of the birth pains of Israel in the latter days. It's the beginning of sorrows. Ladies, those of you who have given birth, you understand this. That's why that picture is used. Yes, at the, at the time of birth, oh, you know, there's this huh, relief in a sense, most, mostly. But it's those nine months of carrying the child, especially the last five, six, seven months. It's weighs so heavy upon you. Consider that for a nation, the nation of Israel, the ones that God, the one that God is dealing with. So it's just the beginning of sorrows. Again, section, sectionally speaking, not everything happens all at once. So what the Lord predicted at the onset of Matthew 24 corresponds clearly with Revelation chapter 6 and the four horsemen that are mentioned in chapter 6. I want you to consider something now going back in Matthew 24 to verse 4. Just go back a few verses. And verse 4 and 5, I put them together because they go together. It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, as he's answering the questions that are posed to him, he said, Take heed that no one deceives you. Look at the first thing that he deals with. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. There is coming a time. There have been times already where people have said, you know, I am the Christ. And whether we want to think of them as nut jobs or whatever, they've said it. But we're not deceived. But there'll come a time when someone will say that and the people will be deceived. So what does this correspond with? This this passage coincides with the rider of the white horse. The first horseman who appears deceptively in what color? White. I've I've read so many commentaries uh, and even on the internet just kind of comparing what people are thinking about this particular passage. And it's incredible how many people are saying this is... You know, that's, it's got to be Jesus because he's wearing white. You've been deceived. Again, if you haven't looked at all of the signs or all of the, uh, all of the, uh, uh, the statements made in that particular verse, you're going to miss the fact that he's got a bow. When does Jesus ever use a bow? Never. The crown that he wears is a Stephanos crown, which is a... A crown of victory that's a laurel wreath, uh, you know, just a, a, a wreath on his head. The crown that Jesus has isn't a laurel wreath. It's, it's a diadema. It is a crown with jewels. It is a kingly, royal crown. We can't be deceived. 
Why would, why would we open up these seals to begin the sense of judgment by saying that this is Jesus? Or as I read in one commentary, it's actually the church. The church is going forth conquering. Really? How do those signs indicate that it's the church? No, they don't. We have to also consider, as we will in just a moment, some of the tie-ins to the book of Daniel, to some, thing, some things that, that Paul has stated, the prophecies dealing with the Antichrist, as it were. He represents a false peace that is achieved without arrows. We talked about this, of course, a couple of weeks ago. And again, no king's crown. The second thing that Jesus states in Matthew chapter 24, I've already shown it to you, but I want, you to, I want to emphasize the first part of it. Jesus said, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Notice the second thing that he says. The first thing he says is, don't be deceived. Second thing he says is, there will be wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now this, of course corresponds to the rider of the fiery red horse, the bringer of bloody warfare, proving that the peace which will be brought about by the Antichrist. And by the way, it isn't so much the Antichrist that's riding the white horse or any of the other horses, but all of these horsemen are representative of what the Antichrist is going to be doing, what the Antichrist is going to be trying or going to try to be accomplishing uh, in all of this, but at the same time you notice that it is the Lord that has allowed this to happen. It is the Lord that has set these seals open so that these things can happen. By the way, the horsemen are directed by God. That, that's telling us, you see, that God is in con complete control. Satan's not in control, as some people may think. And that there's going to be this cosmic battle between God and Satan. Man, Satan's done. There is no battle that Satan can win against the Lord. Please understand that. Satan is not an equal nemesis. He's a created being. He'll eventually be put in his place. God's in control. So this warfare proves that the peace which will be brought about by Antichrist is indeed a false peace, which brings us to the next prediction made by Jesus in verse 7. It says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. Notice the progression. Famines. Now I'm going to stop there because we'll deal with pestilences next time. But this particular statement corresponds to our third writer mentioned in our text this evening. And that is Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. The statement was made to John. You need to see this. You need to record this. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, 
Now stop for just a moment. He said, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, that voice, being that we're still in heaven, being that we're still in that scene that the, the, the seals are being broken, can very possibly be, and I'm, con- I'm convinced of this, that this is the voice of, of the Lord Himself, which again tells us that He is the one that is in control of what's taking place. The Lord is in control of the end time. Don't forget that God has seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. God is eternal. God is outside of our time continuum, but He created our time continuum for us. So we can only see what we see now. But He has revealed a future to us. We can't go back in the past, but He can. He has seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. So I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius, by the way, was, in some translations, it's called a penny. It was actually, if it's, if it's worth anything at all, it would be worth about 15 cents today. A denarius. A Roman coin. Usually silver. But it was a, about, worth about 15 cents. So it wasn't a very big coin. I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. I guess that's that verse. Sorry. If indeed these things are happening at the revealing of the Antichrist as the seals are being loosed, then we need to see every prophecy in connection to these events. The, the Apostle Paul, for example, was allowed to see into the future to reveal to the church some of the events caused by the breaking or the loosing of the seals. I'd like for you to turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 5. These, these are very critical verses of Scripture, tied in context to 1 Thessalonians, in the context that Paul used concerning the rapture of the church as well in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. But here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to meet Him. That is one thought. The coming of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, our gathering together to Him. What is the context? It takes us back to the rapture of the church. We ask you, he says, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. In other words, this, these end time events have already taken place or they started already. And Paul is trying to tell them, see, after the first letter, which was given to them to bring them comfort that their loved ones who, who were dead in Christ, they would rise first. And then we who are alive and remain would be caught up together with them. But now the question is, okay, some things haven't happened, or maybe they have. We are suffering more persecution, and you've taught us some things that are going to be happening to us. Does that mean now that we are in the day of the Lord and we've really just missed the day of Christ? He says, don't be soon troubled. 
Don't be troubled as if the day's already come. Now, this is interesting, and I need to talk about it. The day of Christ had come. In some translations, it says the day of the Lord. Now, there is a distinction that we need to understand in the Scriptures, especially in prophetic literature. There is a distinction between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. The day of Christ can be considered as that day that Jesus comes for His church. John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So that is considered the day of Christ. The next great event for the church is the coming of Jesus to take his bride home in preparation for the marriage. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we'll we'll get into toward the end of the book of Revelation. The day of the Lord, as I've mentioned also, is a different day. In the sense that it isn't a single day, like the event of the rapture. It is a time frame. The day of the Lord is a time frame that we learn from the book of Joel in the Old Testament and a few other books, as well as in the New Testament. Anytime the mention of the day of the Lord is given to us, it is talking about that day of trouble, that day of of struggle, that day of trial, the day of tribulation. It it actually reflects about a seven-year period of time. We call it the tribulation. The middle of that toward the end is the great tribulation. So within the tribulation period of seven years in which Israel has to go through its last seven years of chastisement from the Lord. Because there are seven years that they have yet to complete in their discipline, their chastisement, their punishment as it were. This is the reason why the church is taken out of the way. Because God has to deal with Israel at the same time. It's a day of darkness, as we were, as we were told in our study of, of Zephaniah when we looked at that. It's a time of great darkness. Remember that the Scriptures tell us that we're not of the darkness. We're of the light. And as long as we're here, we are the light. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. So please understand, these these terms are very important that we don't mix them. It isn't kind of mix and match. Yes, Christ is the Lord. But prophetically, from the Scriptures, the day of Christ is that very important day of, of taking the church out. There is the day of the Lord, which actually begins because now we're out of the way. And now the seven-year period begins. So in essence, they kind of, they kind of coincide time-wise with a little space possibly in between. But we, we're going to talk about that later. Anyway, for now, we just need to move on. Uh, and then it says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means. Now, this is an open uh, prophecy to the church. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. We can say that once that day of of the Lord comes, because, again, some translations say the day of Christ and some say the day of the Lord. So, But understand the difference. Yet that day will not come. 
And here, the reference, when we look at it in context, is of that day of tribulation. Let no one deceive you by any means, that for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The word there is apostasia, the apostasy. There's an apostasy going to take place. Now, some have used that word apostasia to mean departure. It's quite possible that it's making a reference to the, to the, uh, uh, to the rapture of the church, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure if that's what it is. Because, in fact, even as we live today, there is already an apostasy taking place in the church. There is a falling away from the faith in the church today. There are churches that don't like the Word of God. Doesn't that sound weird? But there are churches today that don't like the Word of God, so they try to change it. And so they come up with new translations because, you know, we've got to get this right. You know, God didn't get it right. God's old-fashioned. I mean, it might have worked for the Jews, but it's not going to work for us. We're too sophisticated. We're too smart. No. They just want to redefine everything. But sin is sin. And Jesus, yes, He came to die for us as sinners. But we can't start redefining what sin is and isn't. To soothe or to please our own lifestyles, as it were. There is a falling away already from the faith, from the true faith, from the Word of God. I pray that the Lord will give us a strength to hold on to that faith until He comes. To hold on to the love of the Word of God and teach it for what it says. Not for what we wanted to say. But notice what he adds to this. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now that's an interesting statement. The man of sin. Most commentators will say that this is indeed the Antichrist that it's talking about. The beast of the book of Revelation, as we'll see later on. The son of perdition, interesting statement. Literally, it means the son of lostness. Those of you who, who like to compare the, the Latin or Spanish uh, or, or Latino uh, languages, as it were, to, to, to the English and all of that. Son of perdition. Perdition means lostness. Perdido. Y'all got that? Interesting how that works. That's where that word comes from. Literally, it's talking about the son of lostness. You know, there's somebody else that is called the son of perdition in the scriptures. His name was Judas. Man, I I tell you what, it just kind of like hit me in the face today as I'm looking at this because I saw that. You know, and I'm not trying to compare that Judas was was completely was the Antichrist. In essence, he was an Antichrist. 
because he opposed Jesus. But I, I think of the statement that is being applied to the Antichrist as, as being called the son of perdition and knowing that Judas Iscariot was also called the son of perdition because one thing is, is for, it, it, it just kind of really like slapped me in the face today. When does the Antichrist reveal himself? Truly reveal himself? He reveals himself three and a half years into his peace plan. He brings peace. Remember we mentioned this before. Israel wants the temple built again on the temple mount. I don't know how that's going to happen, but God does know. So that's going to happen because that's part of the prophetic landscape. That's part of the prophetic plan that we see in Scripture. So he's going to be looked at as the one who comes to bring peace If indeed it happens after the rapture and so somebody has to come and calm the world down, okay, everything is going to be cool. If if the Christians are out of the way, praise the Lord for that, right? (laughs) He wouldn't say it that way. But he brings peace. And Israel, we we want you to know we we love you. We're going to let you have what you want to have. So have your temple and all of that. And so all of that begins... But in the middle of that three of that seven year period, three and a half years, right in the very middle, what does he do? What does the Antichrist do? He reveals himself for who he is. Three and a half years, and it hit me. When was Judas Iscariot revealed? See, we already knew that Judas was the betrayer because we read it, and, and there were comments in the Gospels that said he was a betrayer. But it was at about three and a half years into Christ's ministry. Christ's earthly ministry was about three and a half years long. Isn't that, co- isn't that interesting? It's not just coincidental, I don't believe. We know it's the Antichrist, but the rest of the, the, rest of the world doesn't. Until he reveals himself three and a half years later. Just, just a thought. Just a thought. And, and, and this is what happens in verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself. Above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Where the Jews would actually have the Ark of the Covenant. The place where God would meet with the priest. It's a throne. And he will go in and exalt himself above all that is called God and, or that is worshipped. But I can tell you this, the spirit of Antichrist exists today. The very same spirit of Antichrist How many people are today opposing and exalting themselves above all that is called God and is worshipped? Because they don't like what God says in His Word. They're creating gods of their own. Using Christian lingo. Using the garb of ecclesiastical Christianity, as it were. 
but having their own way of doing things. Because they're opposed to God and to His Word. Notice, so that He sits as God in the temple of God, showing Himself that He is God. That's the abomination of desolation, folks. Write that down and look it up in the Scripture. The abomination of desolation is spoken of in the prophet Daniel. We will get to it again later. So Paul says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul, Paul taught on prophecy to the church in Thessalonica. He told them the end. You've got to be ready. The end can come at any moment. What that reminds me of in verse 4 is what happened in heaven with a, person, with, with, a, with a creature named Lucifer. Lucifer was, a, was, a, was an angel. And it's the same sin. Because... Lucifer is the enemy. Lucifer is Satan. Lucifer is, is the devil. I mean, it's very clear in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. Whoops. Got ahead of myself. Verse 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, which means light bearer. He was at one time a light bearer, who would later on become the father of lies and of darkness. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you said in your heart, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That was Lucifer's desire. That is the Antichrist's desire. And let me be bold in saying that that is the desire of Islam for Allah. And hence the reason why they say Allahu Akbar, which means our God is greater. Allah is greater. Very same reason why they do it. Because they are in competition with the God of Israel, which is our God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. That's going to be some interesting things we're going to talk about as we get more into, into the book of Revelation when it comes to the revealing of this Antichrist and its spirit. But you have to come and join us still. He's not going to tell you tonight. So with the identity of Antichrist established, at least for us now, we come to the opening of the third seal and the revealing of the writer carrying a pair of scales in his hand, suggesting, if not outright, symbolizing the need to carefully measure and ration food. Because that's the context. The black horse itself symbolizes famine. Reminding us that global conflict often can, often can and will breed the destruction 
of the food supply, creating the possibility of hunger worldwide. We saw it in, in the world wars that we've had in history. Not to a great extent, but we saw it. But, we're, it, but this is going to be multiplied more than we can imagine. What I find interesting is that the rider of the black horse is actually commanded to leave what would be considered the luxuries of the rich untouched, while the staples, the wheat and the barley of the poor, are to be weighed out a pinch at a time. This rider is representing famine as well as economic disaster, folks. Because what else was weighed on the scales, if you remember? What do we even waste things on the scale today? Gold, silver. We weigh these things out. In those days, everything was measured by the scale. Why is it that we find in the, in the Proverbs that um, the statement about dishonest scales? There were a lot of dishonest people who made the scales work on their behalf, you know. Like a lot of people in business today that do what they can to cut corners so that they can make a profit off of other people, but, but do it uh, deceptively. Scales are very important to the Lord. So this is not only talking about famine, which it is, but it's talking also about economic disaster. And folks, I can tell you this. That in the days to come, and we can see this already developing around us, even in our own country, famine and inflation will play such havoc with the economies of the world that a working man's daily wage will buy only enough of the poorest food to satisfy his own immediate needs. That's why it mentions wheat and barley. Wheat was the food that you made bread with. Everybody ate that, but... If, if, if a person working and gets only a day's wage and enough to buy food for himself, what about the family? Oh, but you can buy barley. Well, barley wasn't as good as wheat. And we'll talk about that in a moment. I want you to consider this, if you will. That in 2011... 46.2 million people were in poverty in our country. This is in the U.S. alone. 46.2 million people were in poverty. 9.5 million families were in poverty. 26.5 million of people ages 18 to 64 were in poverty. 16.1 million children under the age of 18 were in poverty. 3.6 million seniors, 65 and older, were in poverty. Now that's the statistics about poverty. Let me give you a few more. Consider also that 50.1 million Americans lived in food insecure households. Now this, is, uh, this food insecurity is actually based more on, on unemployment than it is based on poverty uh, findings, poverty statistics. This is more based on unemployment. But 50.1 million Americans live, lived in food insecure households. In other words, they didn't have enough food. 
14.9% of households were food insecure. 5.7% of households experienced very low food security. 20.6% of households with children were food insecure. That's in the United States of America alone. I didn't even want to venture into the statistics around the world. Which, by the way, uh, most of the world is dependent upon us to help them with their food insecurities. So if this is happening in our country, which still exhibits so much bounty overall, and think about this. Years ago, we, we took a, a guest speaker from England that came. He was actually from Wales. But he came and, and spoke here at the church years and years ago. And uh, we took him to lunch at a, one of these, like, Golden Corral things. He had a friend with him that was, that was from England, and their eyes were about this big. They'd never seen so much food in a buffet before. I don't even think they've ever seen a buffet. almost felt embarrassed that we took him. So we took him to McDonald's, gave him a little 25% sandwich, or 25-cent sandwich. They never see it. We've never seen so much food. And you think about where we shop nowadays, Sam's and Costco and places like that. You can't just buy one thing, you gotta buy ten of them, you know. And yet, there are people starving in our own country. So if it's happening in our country, what's, you know, what's exhibits so much bounty overall, what is happening in the rest of the world? Malnutrition stalks the globe, claiming 10,000 lives every day, probably more now. In the U.S., we throw into our garbage cans every day enough food to feed a family of six in India. Few of us would admit to throwing away large quantities of food. However, one researcher estimated that 15% of all edible food in the U.S. ends up in the garbage at a cost of $17.5 billion annually. Man, that's a lot of wasted food. Sadly, the average American dog has a higher protein diet than most peoples of the world. When I read that, I, I thought, wow. And so consider that the Antichrist and his system of authoritarian government will have the power to control the economy and the distribution of food. As we have seen, food will be rationed in the end time. Notice that it will take a day's wages to buy a quart of wheat, a day's wages to buy three quarts of barley, which, as I said before, was considered the lesser of the food, literally, it was the food for animals. Barley was used for animals. You know, to feed the flocks and the pigs. and the, Well, not the pigs, not in Israel. But, but to feed the flocks and, 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 and the domesticated animals, as it were. So how does war play into this picture? First of all, there may be an imposition of martial law. We've all heard that term, right? Martial law in certain countries where... Very rarely does that happen in the United States. I think uh, during the time of Katrina down in New Orleans. They didn't call it that, but I think they, they kind of exhibited some, some type of martial law. 
I think that happened also in Watts back in the 60s and stuff like that. So it doesn't happen very often here. But in some countries, oh my goodness, martial law. I mean, it's like the army takes over. And uh, this is what is going to be imposed upon the nations of the world, including ours. Followed by the destruction of land that bears crops for consumption. That's what war does. And because of war, there is no one planting crops. Simply people will be fighting for their lives. This happened in Europe in the aftermath of World War II. In various places, not, not a whole, you know, wholesale, but I mean in various places. We're seeing this in the war-torn third world nations like, like the Sudan. This happening in the Sudan. I mean the demonic, communistic atheistic, socialistic government, a uh, military government that's trying to run everything over there, is just killing its own people. And because of what they're doing to the land, they're not, the people aren't eating. Yet they're eating pretty good, the, 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 so, well, the, the governmental people. So devastating famine will take second stage to war. So much for the man of peace and his plans, the plans of the Antichrist. The weighing out of food is significant, and it is a significant issue here. When things are really plentiful, exact weight or measure is not always regarded. While it is wonderful to know that the Lord has poured out His Spirit upon His people without measure, as He poured out His Spirit upon Jesus Christ, nevertheless, when commodities become high in price and scarce, then they are strictly weighed and every ounce is taken into account. And because of sin, God commanded Ezekiel the prophet to act out the, the eating of defiled food to point out the sins of the people of Israel. But I want, I want to point out what he, what he said, what the Lord said to Ezekiel. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight. It has to be rationed and measured. And with anxiety, and shall drink water by measure, and with dread. What did God promise to Israel if they had stayed faithful to Him and obedient? You'll never run dry. You'll never go hungry. I will provide for you. But they rebelled against God and eventually by this time Ezekiel has to act this whole thing out to them well lastly the instruction given not to hurt the oil and the wine is somewhat significant if not sarcastic oil and wine represent luxuries rather than necessities such as wheat and barley Yet, just on a side note, you really can't make bread without a little bit of oil. But it's not talking about it in terms of necessity. Again, it's, in essence, the picture here is, is, uh, is of luxury. Normally, they are expensive and were used as indulgences of the rich. But there won't be a shortage of either of these commodities. There won't be a shortage of oil and wine. 
You know, if we were to kind of move that idea symbolically into our day and time, though we could argue of whether there's a, a shortage of, of oil from the standpoint, not of consumption of food, but oil, for example, of petroleum and, and that which we need today, no matter how much we talk about the, the, whether there's enough oil in our own land, which we have plenty of, but we won't use for whatever reason, and the oil that we have to buy from the arrows, which is, you know, again, tied into this end-time scenario. Any way, shape, or form, no matter how much we pay for it, we're paying for it, and we buy it, and we move around, and we drive, and we do everything right. We have enough. I have yet to see a, a, a station, a, a gas station closed, like back in the 70s when Jimmy Carter was president, and there was rationing. And when you think of wine, we go beyond just the grape and think about all of the other types of, of, of alcohol that is being consumed today in the midst of the, of the, the hunger and, and starvation that goes around us. I mean, isn't that just a, a weird picture that we've got about our society today? Where we are right now? Some people can barely make ends meet, but look at the party attitude, the party spirit in people today. It brings a familiar phrase to mind. The rich get richer, while the poor get poorer. And I believe that's something that the Lord is, is, is saying in this passage to us. The rich will have access to all that is luxurious and best. In oppressive countries today, the poor become poor while the rich leaders flaunt their riches in the face of starvation and death. Prophetically, during the tribulation, a man will have to work all day just to secure food for himself while there is nothing available for his family. That's the kind of statistic that we're being given here by the Lord. With these conditions becoming more and more evident, it is no wonder that Antichrist will eventually be able to control the economy as he promises to feed the masses. And what will be his method of accomplishing this? Turn to Revelation 13 for just a moment. Speaking of the beast, the Antichrist, he causes all, it says, both small and great, in other words, poor and rich, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the name or the number of his name. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that right now because we have a few chapters to go to get there and we'll deal with a lot of different issues on that passage. But what is truly sad is that there has always been scarcity in the midst of plenty. There has always been scarcity in the midst of plenty and no hurt to the luxuries available to those of great wealth. But there is one thing to note, that in the midst of times like this, as is present today, there is no repentance 
because of this. There is no repentance. There is no nation turning to God. There were times when nations actually wholeheartedly would turn to God, the leader of a nation. We see it in the Scriptures at times. And there have been historically times when nations have turned to God. Our own nation in times of great worldwide peril would turn to God. But not any longer. If God is mentioned, it's an afterthought. You have to believe in God if you really want to trust that He can do something great for you as a nation. Nations are not turning to God, but they desire to go their own way without Him. Our nation today is trying to go its own way without God. It's happening. I mean, praise the Lord that we're still in this place and we're still free to come and worship the Lord as we've done tonight and to study His Word as we've done tonight. But in this nation, things are moving away from that. The Bible commentator Johann Bengo wrote this. He said, the balances of this writer, the balances of this writer serve as a sign. The scales, in other words. The balances of this writer serve as a sign that all the fruits of the ground and consequently all heaven with its progressive influences, all the seasons of the year and the course of events with their manifold changes and vicissitudes are subject to Christ. Who sent out this horse and rider? God did. God commanded him. Not to harm the oil and the wine. In essence, it is part of God's plan. All the happenings of the earth, the movements of the crops, the order of events are an answer to God's word. And yet man will not believe. God is trying to wake up the unbeliever. As well as some people who say they're believers. God is trying to wake them up. And so the significance of the color black, death, as a result from famine and starvation. Lamentations 4 verses 8 and 9 speaks of the appearance of famine-stricken people. Look at this. Lamentations. This is the Lamentations of Jeremiah. The weeping, the mourning of Jeremiah because he tried to warn the people of God. And they didn't heed. And destruction came. And notice what it says. Now their appearance is blacker than soot. This passage is dealing with starvation and hunger and lack of. Their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin, their skin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Hunger. 
For, those, for these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. And folks, I have to tell you, we are but a step away from these first three horsemen. We are but a step away. And as devastating as all of this may sound. And by the way, I mentioned, you know, how important the scales are, the weights and measures of God are. You remember that Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, was confronted by Daniel. But Belshazzar primarily was confronted by the hand of God, the finger of God, who wrote that statement. Mene, mene, tekelu farsen. I believe that's in Daniel chapter 5. And the word tekel, T-E-K-E-L, transliterated, means you have been put into the balance or into the scales and you've been found wanting. You've been found wanting. You didn't measure up as a king because you didn't honor me said God so this is serious stuff as devastating as all of this may sound may I offer an alternative spiritual interpretation of this last passage As an encouragement, because I want to leave you with an encouragement tonight. There are other verses in the Word of God where bread, oil, and wine are mentioned together. Because they're mentioned here in this passage. The weed, the barley, the oil, the wine. Well, there's another mention of these things together. And that's in Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. It says... Well, I've been kind of bad at moving these, haven't I? I'll get better. Psalm 104, verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that, uh, wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine. And bread which strengthens man's heart. Is it possible that in the midst of famine for the bread of God? Because in reality, that is what the earth is going to suffer more than anything else. A famine for the word of God. But is it possible that in the midst of famine for the bread of God, where it will be impossible for God's word to be circulated where every precious copy will be protected in the days of great persecution, that the people will nonetheless have the wine of gladness and the anointing of the Spirit of God. You know where we can learn that more than any place else? We can learn that in a nation called China, where for so many years after the, the uh, revolt that uh, took place because of Mao Zedong, and that turned China into a communistic nation, an atheistic nation. Christians were now 
hunted and killed for their faith. Back in 1989, I had the privilege of going to Macau and to Hong Kong with a, with a team of people that, that we went to actually smuggle Bibles into China, Chinese Bibles into China. And uh, we heard the stories of the people who were from uh, mainland China, believers. Some of them had just written on pieces of paper verses of scripture and others would write other parts and they would only have one Bible amongst themselves, maybe a hundred people and they would meet underground, you know, for their church services and stuff. So trying to get Bibles into them, it, it was, it was quite, a, quite a task. We got some in. But I remember how blessed they were to, to actually have a Bible in their hand. When all along they had coats that they had to sew their little papers in into so that they wouldn't be caught because if they were caught they would be punished, sometimes killed, imprisoned for sure. The word of God was precious to them. It needs to be precious to us. We have so many Bibles, don't we? I hope we're reading them. I hope we're seeing how precious they are to us. Because there may be a time when we'll leave our Bibles behind for those who need to remember that we told them this was going to happen. We're going to get into this pretty soon. The fifth seal, when it is broken, speaks of believers in the earth at the time who will be martyred for their faith. So will it be possible for God's word to be circulated where every precious copy will be protected and the people nonetheless will have the wine of gladness and the anointing of the Spirit of God? Certainly the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ will have left the earth at the rapture. But because he's God, he's ever-present and he will remain on the earth as he did in the Old Testament times, pouring himself forth upon those who believe and make glad their hearts in the midst of spiritual famine. And that is why no matter what we go through in this life of ours, as we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ, we can rejoice. We can praise the Lord. We can be excited about the things that God has done in our lives. And we should, as long as we have breath and as long as we have the freedom to share the gospel of Jesus. We need to do it. Because there will be a time when it won't be easy. And let's just praise the Lord, not just in the church, but let's praise Him wherever we go. Let's let people know that God has a plan. Let's let people know that Jesus did come and that he's coming again. But when he comes, they need to be ready. Because a lot of things are going to happen. Equip yourself with the book of Revelation as a tool to bring people to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Father. 
for giving us the opportunity as you do each and every.